Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 128 of the Quickie Podcast. I guess I should say 128 part one, because this was such a great interview, I had to cut it into two episodes. We just couldn't stop talking and sharing stories, and gosh, my guest today has a lot of things to share. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and let's get to the intro. My guest today is Danielle Evans from Marmalade Blue. I'll say this slowly. She is a dimensional typographer. Dimensional typographer. That is taking food and objects and creating typography with them. It's amazing. First off, I've never heard of this. And the things, the objects and food that she has created typography with is mind-boggling. It's fantastic. During this interview, she tells us some of those objects and about some of those projects. We also talk about art school. And when she was finished art school, you know, her trying to find her spot, find her designer identity, you know, where she belonged. She liked bits of pieces of design and illustration and all of these things, but where does sort of her skill set fit? Danielle also tells us how she wasn't raised in a privileged household at all, so it taught her to be creative and resourceful in finding things to be creative with. She also tells a story about a contest that she was a part of, and during this contest, they were making posters and doing poster design. But some of these other entries that really uh, caught her attention utilized print in really unique ways, interacting with the senses in different ways than print traditionally does. Gosh, this is such a jam-packed episode, (laughs) hence why I had to cut it into two. And uh, this is the intro, sort of the starter stuff, explanation about what is dimensional typography and some of the cool stories of projects she's been a part of. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Danielle Evans. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Hi, Danielle. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for having me today, Dave. Thank you for being on the show. I know you've got a crazy schedule, so thanks for fitting this in. Oh my goodness. Anything for fun guests and cool people and great ideas. And All about it. You could say anything for a quickie. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I almost went there and then was like, no, don't make that joke unless he makes a purse. <laughs> the joke is there to be made. 100%. <laughs> Ricky Gervais once said, you know, um, life's too short. If you think of something funny, you should say it. Mm. So I will take go. that to heart and get myself art. fired from my next job. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yes, exactly. Make the inappropriate joke in the very first meeting, set the tone. <laughs> Throw it out on my ass and then instantly tweeting about it. Can't yeah, wait. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's either that or it goes really well and you're like, great, this is perfect. I just opened the arena. Any joke is good. Yes. Perfect. Well. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm going to start with the tough stuff. So briefly tell the listeners about yourself. 
Okay, well, I am Danielle Evans. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I am a dimensional typographer. And what that means is I make lettering and illustration out of food and objects. So I pull metaphors from the world around us because all of the items that we touch, see, taste, hold, generally interact with on a daily basis have layers and layers of meaning attached to them. Um, and so it's my job to utilize those metaphors and communicate through imagery with them to a greater audience. So it's a lot of um, layering of truth, layering of jokes, mm -hmm. and generally connecting with different kinds of people. So in a lot of ways, my work ends up kind of, the framework of my work sounds more like a um, UX UI designer mm -hmm. or an e-commerce person in the way that I present it, but it's very much a fine artist take on design and illustration. Wow, really well said. So two Thank questions you. come to me immediately from that. First is, how long have you been doing that for? I've been doing it for six years and change full time. Okay. And the second more important question is, how and what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of questions there. <laughs> um, I guess the, the briefest way to ex explain this is that... Um, when I was in art school, I went to school for illustration. And mm -hmm. by art school, there's an asterisk there. A school that had art at it <laughs> is Got where it. I went. <laughs> but I, I had an illustration major. But I realized I was not proficient at character design. Um, I had a hard time with animation, which is strange now. And I didn't understand color or how to paint. And at the time, we were just kind of dipping our toes into what digital practice could look like. So all we had were actual paints and things like that. And I didn't know what I was going to do when I graduated because it was clear it, I didn't quite belong in the traditional path of an illustrator. Okay. But I knew that I liked to tell stories. And it wasn't until I got to junior year of college that I discovered design and typography. And I'm like, wow, this is like a hierarchy. Things are more shape-based, not so much line-based. Um, there's a framework in place where as illustration, you got to like pull that out of your ass essentially. And <laughs> it's kind of sexy. Like over here, people wear glasses and look like they shower on the regular. Like <laughs> maybe I want to live this life a little bit too, but I couldn't fully commit to one or the other. So I always had a foot in design and illustration and I graduate from school. I can't find a job because the housing crisis and what do you do with this? Perfect. Um, yeah, like, what do you do with this? Um, so I worked at the mall for several years, applying uh, my trade, honing my craft. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and then finally, through a series of, like, really bad jobs and trying to find work and striking out on my own when I wasn't ready, um, I discovered that I needed to access the part of me that liked to play. And the part of me that liked to play did not ascribe to pixel perfection, which was really popular in design at the time. It didn't understand um, the finessing that people do with like a letterpress or um, vector illustration. Like none of that really made sense to me. I was always like an 85% finessed with like the 15% wrap up, like just kind of fumbling through something. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I started to seek the identity that I had in the design world, I realized what I do is imperfect, but it's, um, very handcrafted, it's playful, it's fun, and it's evocative. 
And so as I started experimenting, I experimented with cut paper, I experimented with objects and really kind of struck a chord with people when I started using food. So I would take spices and different things and throw them onto a cutting board or a wooden surface. I ruined so much furniture at that time <laughs> through nice. these experiments. And I would start arranging them into letter forms. Um, what made my work different from what had previously existed, um, I hadn't really found people that were using this kind of thinking, like analog practice and applying it to typography mm -hmm. in a way that made something look sophisticated and part of an environment. And so I thought, oh, maybe maybe this is the spot for me. This is cool. And so I, my very first project, I grind a bunch of coffee, I throw it on a cutting board, I'm having a good time listening to music and just realizing like, this is so fun because when I'm done, I can throw it back in the bag and I can just eat it later and this will be fine. Can't do this with art supplies. <laughs> you know, I'm feeling very, <laughs> very proud of myself. Um, and then I start posting the pictures on Dribble, and they, all of a sudden I'm on the popular page. I'm like, whoa, that never happened to me before. And people started requesting stuff from me. Like, have you used tea? Like, do you use spices? Like, what else are you playing with these days? I'm like, God, I don't know just started. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a space where I found that there was an opportunity in the design world to delight and surprise people and to awaken their senses through visual work. So wow. here I am all this time later. <laughs> okay, that's so cool. Um, Thank you. Before I dive back into childhood, because I'm definitely going there, but yes. I have to ask, what is the most bizarre item you have made typography out of? So... This is probably the most bizarre thing I've ever made only because of basically all the experimenting I had to do and all the science involved, but also you could never find this in real life. Uh, several months ago, I made blacklight responsive jello. I wanted glow in the dark jello. Not edible. Oh, it is edible. Yeah, there's, I made a video of me eating it on top of also panning light around it and showing how it moved and shifted based on where things were refracting. Yeah, it was nuts. Okay, so black light responsive jello. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. That's perhaps the weirdest thing. And I mean, this answer, I get this question sometimes, and it just keeps getting stranger. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I thought you were gonna say like, you know, you made some crazy illustration out of tampons or something like that. But you I, mean, I did do that once. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> So, yeah, that's so fun. That cat litter, um, <laughs> raw meat in the middle of summer. Oh, oh raw meat must have been awesome. <laughs> it was one of the hottest days of the year. Oh, raw meat on a hot day. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to dive back a little bit further now. Okay. Um, and I want to ask you about your childhood. Do you feel <laughs> you had a creative childhood that led you sort of in this creative direction? Um, yes and no. And I feel like you should have some sort of notebook that you're writing into when you ask this and I should be laying on a couch. Yes. This is where <laughs> I start billing for my time. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, it's funny. Um, I did have a creative childhood and I had a creative childhood for, I think a couple reasons. Um, the biggest one would be because I grew up in an underprivileged household. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, by all appearances looked like we were living kind of like a middle-class life, but that was kind of at the best of times. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we never, we never went completely hungry. That was not quite as bad as it got, but we really just didn't have things. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I find that when you lack something, typically you become more resourceful. Yes. And so, for example, um, through school, we would be asked to like write reports or go take a trip or, or do these different things that we could then bring back to write an essay about something for a class. And it always seemed like in my house, we were like, okay, well, it, I don't know where to go for this paper I have to write on Japan. Why don't we make a giant cookie and turn it into a map? And so there was a lot of that growing up of using like different items to make these physical representations of other things. And um, people always loved it whenever I had to give a report because they're like, oh, Danielle's going to bring in um, a giant graham cracker fort to talk about Ohio history. Neat. So <laughs> we all ended up getting snacks. Who doesn't want to be that person? <laughs> Just don't use hot glue to put it together. Right? Correct. <laughs> But I also feel like the way that um, my grandparents were, my grandfather immigrated here from Italy when he was young, and my grandmother was from a poor Serbian family um, who had been there just slightly longer in the country. And so the two of them were very blue-collar people, and I remember them always instilling this idea of every item has more than one use. And I think when you grow up like that, you stop seeing the things around you as utilitarian and um, as just like for one purpose. And I think through those experiences of like having my grandmother show us how to use a, uh, almost like a wire hanger to close a curtain or to hang a potted plant or to pull stuff out of your drain and just realizing like, Oh, this thing that I thought was just for clothes actually has many more capabilities than I would have originally thought. I think all of those factors kind of pack into your experience mm -hmm. and then come out if you're willing to unpack them as an adult. Okay, that's super cool. I love how you said that sort of that underprivileged household is really where your creative and resourcefulness came from. Mm -hmm. And it it seems like there's a pretty straight line to draw from mm -hmm. that Badash. experience to now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I realized um, what were the options for a lot of my friends growing up, well, they would go on vacations and um, they would have these lavish family functions and I mean, that's how they would experience the world. For me, I had television and I had crayons and the, that was probably going to be it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I realized like a lot of people in this line of work come from these more privileged backgrounds where it's like, oh, if you have some sort of um, security net of any sort, it's a lot easier to take creative risks and to put more of yourself into your work because you have something to catch you if it doesn't quite work. Um, it's very different to be in this line of work as someone who has lacked trying to establish enough. You know, it's a, it's a totally different baseline. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, it's really fascinating when I meet other people in the arts that are like, Hey, I, I have this background too. And it is, it is a very different way of, of working. I love the way you painted that picture, you know, the two different approaches to creative. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, I think about it a lot these days. <laughs> no kidding, right? Well, this is like the generation of mindfulness and exploring yourself and unpacking things. Mm -hmm. Got it. So I want to know if during this journey or, or at what point in the experience did you start noticing design, typography, uh, you know, out in the world? When was that? Oh, my God. I think it was probably – it was definitely when I was little. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I have this – tweet that I made a few, I'd say about a month ago now. Yeah. And it's me looking very smug as an adult going, when you start reading your journals as a child, and then there's a picture of me wearing 
the exact same outfit looking very perturbed while I'm drawing. And it's something like, um, then you realize you're the same person. Um, and as you look at the childhood photo of myself, you can see me drawing a picture of the Power Rangers with the little Power Ranger logo. Nice. It's very poorly done. But <laughs> like being raised by television in a lot of ways, you start thinking about the way graphics fit into a major scene or the kinds of decisions people are making. I remember when I was like 12, I had this idea for a Levi's commercial and I've searched it to be like, I didn't. I haven't seen this idea. It was one that just made sense to me based on the commercials I'd watched. It doesn't exist. It's something that I've carried with me as a child. Um, I think like just being aware of catalogs also, like thinking of the Sears catalog at Christmas when it would show up. The wish thinking, book. Yes, the wish book where you'd open it, it would be this giant stack, like something as thick as an encyclopedia mm -hmm. and just realizing how they cram all this shit into one spot and you want all of it, mm -hmm. like having that level of like typographic hierarchy, um, visual hierarchy with imagery, how illustration works into those spaces, which don't have a lot of space, like which of these colors and which of these treatments are stoking your desire. Like through those childhood experiences, I started observing like, wow, somebody had to make decisions about how this looks. And that's when I started realizing that like, maybe there was something here for me because I was drawn to it. And it wasn't until I became an adult and went to college, I realized, oh, people did in fact sit down and do this for work. They did lay these things out. They did make mindful decisions about um, how design was to function. And as an adult now realizing that um, whether you are a photographer or a jewelry maker or a furniture um, builder or any kind of designer, if you're facilitating an experience for someone and you're trying to simplify and elevate it, that is design. Mm -hmm. We're always designing this conversation in a lot of ways is designed. Um, but that doesn't make it any less good. It just means it's more thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I like the way you put that. So you had really seen design. You had seen it. You had noticed it when you were younger, but you just didn't have a label for it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So what, do you think stands out to you as the most influential design of your life so far? What jumps oh, out? Do you, so something that like I have been involved with? Uh, it could be something you've seen earlier on in your career and it's just stuck with you, or it could be uh, something you've been a part of. That's very good, actually. Yes, that makes sense to me. So I saw a handful of design features um, in a competition one year and I, I had tried to enter it. I didn't get in. Obviously, I wasn't in a spot where I knew what I wanted to say with my work yet. But the people that won this competition had a lot to say with their work. And it strangely all kind of was in the same vein. Um, one of them was Clark Orr. I've followed Clark's work for years. He's an incredible illustrator and graphic designer and runs Hellcats with his wife, uh, Brittany. And so the two of them, or I'm sorry, it was just Clark at this time. He made a poster and had it screen printed by Mama Sauce, and it was like lickable wallpaper, basically, the Willy Wonka stuff, but you could smell it. So maybe you weren't supposed to lick it, but they had stuck essential oils in the printing. And I was like, whoa, you've invoked a sense of smell from somebody looking at a visual thing. Um, there was another company, I always forget their name, but they're based out of, I think, Denmark. They had made a book of ethics for their internal company, and they gave them away to all of the... Um, employees, except they had a weight in the spine. 
So you could literally feel the gravitas of these decisions in this manifesto. Oh, wow. It's like, whoa, you invoked like heaviness and touch into a visual element. And I started realizing that all of these people were teaching me through their exploration that we could have multi-sensory experiences with our work if we were willing to kind of pull in other elements. And for me, again, that idea of food or that idea of objects that you handle every day that already carry these things made perfect sense to infuse into my own work. Wow. That's yeah. so cool that you say that. And the couple that you mentioned there, both the book and the poster, what's interesting to that, like I have a big print background and I'm passionate about print and, you know, that medium. Um, and it's just so unique how you've said both of them are print pieces, printed pieces, yeah. but not just invoking tangible, not just invoking visual, but also there's another sense tied into it. Yes. And how that yes. can be so much more impactful. And what other medium can you create that with? Right, exactly. I, I, I just, and I don't know. It's strange because you're starting, we're starting to see something now where digital practices are stopping, uh, they're starting to be less lazy because everybody is in a digital space right now. I'm noticing and I've been noticing for the last year that sound is a huge element that people are pulling into digital visual components mm. and assets. And I don't mean like speaking over it. I mean like sounds pulling people in through ASMR or practices like that. That's like digital is just starting to scratch the surface, but print has had those capabilities for a very long time. And it's just encouraging people to start looking at that going, okay, this is an experience that everyone will have to have. Everyone's going to be touching this item for years because we've printed it. It's physical. So how do we make this physical thing even more meaningful than just looking cute or cool? Very cool. Mm -hmm. um, totally got ahead of myself there. I'm going to just <laughs> no, <okay>. rewind <laughs> just a little bit. Um, I want to hear who some of the designers and brands that you look up to and closely follow are. What about them do you like? Is there a theme there? That's tricky because for me, I try really hard not to get too close to people who I feel are adjacent to me or mm -hmm. running in the same lane because I just don't think that's valuable. It ends up becoming redundant and then we end up feeding off of each other and it just devolves into a, forgive it, circle jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, people that I admire in a philosophical way are really interesting to me. Um, Timothy Goodman is someone that I admire for just being raw and honest. I think there's so much room in this, in this community and in the creative world for a man that is willing to be vulnerable, to give platform to people who do not look like him and are in touch with the spectrum of his emotions and human experience. So that to me is the rawness of him mm -hmm. is very refreshing to me. Um, I really second, uh, sorry, you're the second interview in a row to bring him up. Yeah. And I've followed his work for a while now. Um, but just this last episode and you are the first two to bring it up. Yeah. I, I think it's becoming more important. It's proving that his work is becoming more important and it's less about the technique of it. It's more so about just what are you saying? What mm -hmm. is, the concept and the constant of what you're saying. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a very easy thing to say, but Gemma O'Brien is a phenomenal person. Um, I try not to meddle too much in looking at what she's doing, but I think the fact that she has just continued to evolve as a human being, I mean, she did not have a, a design background. Uh, the work that she does is so layered and complex and 
while it feels the same, it's forever evolving. I think it's so easy to become a person who's known for a style or a brand and just live there for a Mm -hmm. minute. But that's not really the point of us. I think it builds you a very reasonable artist following, but it doesn't necessarily connect with people. And she does an excellent job of connecting with people through her evolution. I think that's very difficult to do. So cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we already touched a little bit on print, but your background is more of the photography side because you're heavy in photography. And I'm interested to hear if you have any interactions with print with your work and how print has tied into your career at all. Yes. Okay. So this is fascinating. So when I think about my skill sets for a minute, I am primarily an illustrator. I'm secondarily an art director and I'm tertiarily a photographer. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is the first two things are the things I can do all damn day. I love both of those things, illustrating and art directing. Um, They come very naturally to me, and if I am on a team working on a project, I will be loath to give either part of those up. Um, The photography part is the part that has been really hard for me, the part that I've had to learn. Um, The stop motion that I do is tied in with that skill, and the the video that I've experimented with is also tied in with those skills. Those are the ones that if I could give them up to anybody, I would happily do that (laughs) so that I can focus on my thing because they're so technically complicated. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways for a photo to go wrong and even more ways for a photo to go wrong in print. Um, What I love about my first two skills, my primary and secondary skill set, is that because of those skill sets, I'm thinking all the time about if I have to make this photo, these people said they want to put in additional text, where is it going to go? How do I frame out my space for this? If I didn't do a good job of planning, how do I then replicate the background or build this out so that everyone has the room that they need. Sometimes that gets really complicated. Um, Sometimes people take liberties with my work in print where they're like, oh, I didn't like this, so we upped the contrast. Uh, This wasn't green enough, so we bumped the saturation, and it looks horrendous. And I think there's a a point at which um, within my clauses where I've had to be like, hey, these are as is. If you want a mock-up, fine, but... I don't know that you should be taking liberties with my stuff like this, my dudes. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it gets really hairy because yeah. print is so refined and it is greatly dependent on what you're printing upon, what kind of substrate you're using, mm-hmm. and frankly, what kind of size and where it's going to live. Like That's something that I don't think we teach people enough of, and I've been the on the brunt of bad decisions made by people that were doing those jobs. <laughs> mm. So that's like where communication is just like so key and so important so that you have the art directed visual of how this needs to look and how this needs to be. Right. And when you're connecting with a printer or the customer who's connecting with a printer, that's got to be an open line of communication. What substrate yeah. are we going on? What do I need to do to it? So it comes out this way. Yes. On your end. Like just got to be wide open. Yes. Got it. Very cool. Exactly. And it's funny because I don't think a lot of people really consider like, hey, we should probably be in communication with each other. They just think, oh, you were part of this assembly line. You did your job. And now I'm going to move. When in reality, it rarely ever works that way. And nor does anybody want it to work that way. It's the Mm -hmm. bureaucracy of of design sometimes. It's got to be, you know, it definitely has to be a community approach. But there is a line where it becomes too much of a community and you have too many, you know, too many inputs, right? (laughs) Too many cooks. Too many cooks <laughs> Too many in the kitchen. Cooks. Yes. 
All right. So now I want to get into a couple of questions about um, challenging times in your career. And I want to... All right. You're damn right. I'm going to cut it off right there. A little cliffhanger for you. The rest of this episode, I bumped over to tomorrow with part two. That's where we get into the nitty gritty, the challenges, the lessons learned. We talk a lot about mental health and a product that she was a part of where the uh, the service of others was missed. It became all about just making it look cool and they missed the service of others. That and so much more in part two. So check that out tomorrow morning. Bye.